0: The House and Senate will come back today and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Monday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House gathered and voted to pass a measure to order the previous question a standard parliamentary maneuver. Then the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of four bills to come. H.R. 277, the Rains Act of 2023. H.R. 288, the Separation of Powers Restoration Act. H.R. 1640, the Save Our Gas Stoves Act, and H.R. 1615, the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act. And then, well, then all hell broke loose. What was originally scheduled to be a five-minute vote turned into a 50-minute vote as House Republican leaders scrambled to find the votes necessary to pass the rule. Because 11 members of the House Republican Conference, including 10 members of the House Freedom Caucus and Matt Gates decided to demonstrate to Speaker McCarthy that they retained the power to make or break him and his interests. They were still upset over what they considered broken promises from McCarthy's debt ceiling deal with President Biden the previous week, and they wanted to show McCarthy that the deal he had concluded, which relied on being passed with the help of Democrat votes, was the wrong way to go. To make their point, they relied on Democrat votes. We'll talk more about this in a moment. And then, unexpectedly, they were done for the week. This week in the House, the House will return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House is scheduled to take up H.J. Res. 44, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives related to factoring criteria for firearms with attached stabilizing braces. Under the Biden administration, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has promulgated a new rule that says that pistols with a stabilizing brace attachment would be reclassified as short-barreled rifles. And gun owners who fail to register their pistols with stabilizing braces, with the ATF, could face up to 10 years in prison and fines up to $10,000. This CRA resolution of disapproval would overturn that rule. Then the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 1615, the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act. This bill would prevent the Consumer Product Safety Commission from using federal funds, one, to regulate gas stoves as a banned hazardous product, or two, issue or enforce a product safety standard that prohibits the use or sale of gas stoves or substantially increases their price. Then the House is scheduled to begin consideration of H.R. 1640, the Save Our Gas Stoves Act. That's a bill that would prohibit the Secretary of Energy from finalizing, implementing, or enforcing the proposed rule titled Energy Conservation Program, Energy Conservation Standards for Consumer Conventional Cooking Products. Then the House is scheduled to take up H.R. 277, the RAINS Act of 2023. This bill would mandate that a major rule may only take effect if Congress approves it and defines a major rule as a rule that has resulted in or is likely to result in 1. An annual effect on the economy of $100 million or more. 2. A major increase in costs or prices for consumers, individual industries, government agencies, or geographic regions. Or three, significant adverse effects on competition, employment, investment, productivity, innovation, or the ability of U.S.-based enterprises to compete with foreign-based enterprises. Then the House may take up a veto message to accompany H.J. Res. 42 disapproving of the action of the District of Columbia Council in approving the Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Amendment Act of 2022. That's Tuesday. On Wednesday, the House is scheduled to consider H.R. 288, the Separation of Powers Restoration Act of 2023, a bill that would modify the scope of judicial review of agency actions to authorize courts reviewing agency actions to decide de novo, that is, without giving deference to the agency's interpretation, all relevant questions of law. The House will also complete its consideration of H.R. 1640, the Save Our Gas Stoves Act, and H.R. 277, the RAINS Act of 2023. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of David Crane to be Undersecretary of Energy. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Dilawar Syed to be Deputy Administrator of the Small Business Administration. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on, and then to confirm the nomination of Molly R. Sifrence, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Elizabeth Allen to be Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy at the Department of State. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I'd also anticipate votes on Hernan de Vera to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California, Jared Bernstein to be Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers, and P. Casey Pitts to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California. Now, let's go back to that debt ceiling fallout. So, what exactly happened on the House floor last Wednesday? The leadership brought up a standard rules vote. Remember, nothing gets to the floor of the House without a rule governing the floor debate. Passing a rule is a regular part of the parliamentary procedure, and it's always viewed as a party-line vote. If you're in the majority party, you vote for a rule, or you risk the wrath of your party's leadership. And if you do it often enough, you find yourself stripped of nice committee assignments and seats on cushy congressional delegations and you find yourself instead stuck on the District of Columbia subcommittee. Taking down a rule, that is, defeating it, is a very rare occurrence. Not surprisingly, the last time a rule failed to win passage was more than 20 years ago. Let's go back in time two weeks. Two weeks ago, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden had concluded their debt ceiling deal. Conservatives in the House were enraged. They believed McCarthy had sandbagged them, that he had cut an especially bad deal with Biden. Some even said they believed McCarthy had broken promises he had made to them during his fight to win the speakership back in January. For instance, some of them said he had promised in January that when it came time to deal on the debt ceiling, he would insist on returning to fiscal year 2022 spending levels as the price for GOP support for raising the debt ceiling. McCarthy said he had never promised that. He had merely said he would fight for those lower spending levels. Failure to achieve victory on that front isn't evidence of a broken promise, he implied, merely a failure to achieve a goal he shared with them. In the hours immediately following the vote on the debt ceiling package, some conservatives openly spoke of invoking the motion to vacate the chair, that is, an attempt to remove McCarthy from the speakership as punishment for his bad debt deal. By the following morning, that talk had diminished, and conservatives began looking for other ways to make their displeasure known. Now, to the outside world, it looked as if the angry conservatives were merely looking for ways to exact revenge on McCarthy. But that missed the point. They weren't acting entirely out of anger. They were also acting strategically. By doing the deal he had done with Biden, and then relying on Democrat votes to get it across the finish line... McCarthy had demonstrated that a new coalition majority comprised of centrist Republicans and center-left Democrats could form a House majority. The angry conservatives didn't want McCarthy to think that new coalition should be his new preference. They wanted very strongly to remind him that any majority coalition he formed to pass legislation should, by definition, include them. So, ironically, they engaged in a pattern of behavior that relied for its success on them doing exactly what they accused him of, that is, voting with Democrats to form a majority. In this case, they voted with the Democrats against the rule proposed by their own leadership, and they tanked the rule. Typically, the Speaker leaves control of the floor to the majority leader and his staff. Speaker McCarthy left the problem in in Majority Leader Scalise's hands. Now, reporters have been writing for some months about the dissension between McCarthy and Majority Leader Scalise, the second-ranking Republican in the House. In this case, they took advantage of the opportunity to remind people of the supposed tension between the two men in their offices reporting that McCarthy and his allies believed the problem on the floor Tuesday afternoon began with Scalise's mishandling of a conversation with fellow Republican Congressman Andrew Clyde over Clyde's CRA resolution of disapproval, the one we just talked about. Clyde believed he was told the previous week that if he didn't vote for the debt ceiling deal, his CRA resolution on pistol braces wouldn't get a floor vote. Scalise denied that, saying merely that he had told Clyde that his bill still didn't have enough support from more moderate Republicans, and that Clyde voting against the debt ceiling deal probably wouldn't help him build support from those moderate Republicans. Scalise and his deputies worked hard, but in the end lost the struggle. As it became clear the rule was going down, Scalise changed his vote from aye to nay, so that he could later enter a motion to reconsider the legislation. So, Scalise offered a non-debatable motion to reconsider, which was approved by voice vote. The yeas and nays were then demanded, and a recorded vote was ordered. The chair postponed further consideration under Rule 20, Clause 8. That means, procedurally, one, the record vote on reconsideration must come up within two legislative days. Two, if the motion to reconsider is adopted, then the rule resolution will immediately be the pending business of the chamber, and the chair can immediately put the question for voice vote. 3. If the motion to reconsider is rejected, that is the final disposition of the rule resolution. No further motion for reconsideration is available at that point. As I said, this was the first time since 2002 that a rule was defeated on the House floor. Afterwards, as the 11 recalcitrant Republicans were talking to the press about what they had done and why they had done it, it became clear that they believed McCarthy had broken promises he had made to them during the negotiations over his ascension to the speakership back in January. The problem is, whatever promises he made them were neither written down nor publicized, so we have no way of knowing what, if any, promises he broke. The House Republican leadership planned to get things settled on Wednesday morning and then returned to pick up the calendar on Wednesday afternoon. But they couldn't come to agreement with the recalcitrant Republicans, and decided late Wednesday afternoon that there would be no more votes for the week. Remember, at that point they had already used up one of the two legislative days within which the motion to reconsider had to be considered. So they announced they were done for the week and everyone could go home, and they hoped they would have things figured out and an agreement reached that would allow them once again to control the House floor. And we'll find out tonight whether or not they've solved McCarthy's problem with the 11 recalcitrant Republicans. Excuse me for a moment. Now to Surviving Socialism. Last Friday, Tea Party Patriots Action released its new documentary film, Surviving Socialism, Don't Get Sucker Punched. Now available to stream free at the link you'll find in the suggested reading. The film features survivors of socialism who share their personal stories and their poignant warnings for the United States. The film also features young Americans, including Candace Owens, Scott Pressler, Morgan Zegers, and Maggie Vandenberg, who inspire us to fight against the socialist tide. In releasing the documentary, TPPA Honorary Chairman Jenny Beth Martin said, quote, When we began making the film, a recent survey revealed that 70% of young people would support socialist candidates. This was alarming, because if young people knew the effects of socialism, they would understand that it consistently results in economic failure, loss of basic human freedoms and the deaths of tens of millions. This is why our documentary, Surviving Socialism, is necessary and timely. The people who escaped socialist countries like Cuba, Venezuela and the Soviet Union need to be heard and their warnings for the United States deserve the largest audience. The more people truly understand what happened in failed socialist countries and the parallels that are happening in the United States today, the better our chances are to save our country. Now to a Chinese spy base in Cuba. The Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday that China and Cuba had come to an agreement that China was going to build an electronic eavesdropping base in Cuba that would allow it to listen into communications in the southeastern United States. China would pay Cuba billions of dollars for the right to build and maintain the spy base. On Friday, Republicans and Democrats in Florida's congressional delegation asked for a classified briefing on China's plans, calling the proposed site an attempt to undermine the integrity and privacy of United States government, military, and civilian communications. On Saturday, the White House knocked down the story, saying the journal had its facts wrong. The Chinese had been spying on the southeastern United States from a base in Cuba for the last several years. This is an ongoing issue, said the official White House statement, and not a new development, and the arrangement as characterized in the reporting does not comport with our understanding. That's of little comfort. For those of us who have been around a while, the discovery of a Chinese electronic eavesdropping operation based in Cuba sounds eerily reminiscent of the August 1979 revelation that there was a combat brigade of some Two to 3,000 Soviet troops in Cuba. That revelation, coming just weeks after the Carter administration's submission to the Senate for ratification of the second Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty with the Soviet Union, that is, SALT II, as it was then known, led to significant political problems for Carter. He had to ask the Senate to delay consideration of the treaty for a time while he dealt with the matter. And then, a few months later, in December of 1979, the Red Army invaded Afghanistan, and that ended any chance for Senate ratification of the SALT II Treaty, and helped set the stage for the election the following year of Ronald Reagan, and the inauguration of his Peace Through Strength national security policy that led to victory in the Cold War. Now to House Oversight versus the FBI, the Biden crime family saga. Last Monday, to avoid a House oversight and accountability vote, to hold him in contempt of Congress, FBI Director Christopher Wray arranged for Committee Chair Jamie Comer and Committee Ranking Democrat Jamie Raskin to see and be briefed on the FD-1023 form that had been at the center of a dispute between the committee and Wray for weeks. Comer and Raskin disagreed on the document and the briefing. Comer said they had been told the document was part of an ongoing FBI investigation. Raskin said it was his understanding that the investigation had been closed. Comer insisted that all the members of the committee, not just the two senior-most members, should be allowed to see the document. Ray held firm for another two days. But on Wednesday, Comer announced he would convene the committee the following morning for the purpose of moving a contempt of Congress citation through the committee. Ray folded that night. And Thursday, members of the committee were allowed to view the document. Following their viewing of the document in a secure compartmented intelligence facility on the Capitol grounds, several members of Congress spoke with the press about what they had seen. According to media reports, the document contained information regarding an allegation made by a longtime FBI confidential informant in 2017 that a Ukrainian businessman had made two $5 million payments one to Vice President Joe Biden, and one to his son Hunter, in exchange for Vice President Biden's help in removing from office the Prosecutor General of Ukraine. Comer confirmed that the confidential informant had received from the FBI at least $200,000 over the years, attesting to the FBI's view of his usefulness and the credibility of his information. The committee chairman also said he believed the FBI had never properly investigated the tip from the confidential informant. Not surprisingly, this news didn't get a whole lot of play when it broke on Thursday afternoon. Something else happened that day to suck all the media oxygen right out of the room. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Stay tuned on this one. It's not going away. Now, what else happened on Thursday? Well, Thursday evening, former President Donald Trump announced that his lawyers had been told earlier that day that he had been indicted by the federal government on multiple counts in the documents investigation. On Friday, Special Counsel Jack Smith held a press availability and released the 49-page indictment to the public, so we could all read for ourselves the details of the 37 counts, which basically fall into two categories. Having in his possession national defense information he was unauthorized to have in his possession, and obstructing justice when the National Records Administration and the Department of Justice sought to retrieve those documents. Fully 31 of the 37 counts are for willful retention of national defense information, that is, violations of the Espionage Act, with each of the 31 counts listing a description of an individual document and its classification marking. It's important to note that Trump is charged here under the Espionage Act, which does not require that the documents in his possession be classified. Instead, uh, so that means that we don't have to worry about whether Trump declassified the documents before he left the White House. By charging Trump under the terms of the Espionage Act, Smith believes he doesn't need to even engage in that argument. Count 32 is Conspiracy to Obstruct Justice, in which the government charges that Trump and his former White House body man and current employee, Walt Nauta, engaged in a conspiracy to engage in misleading conduct toward another person and corruptly persuade another person to withhold a record, document, and other object from an official proceeding. The purpose of the conspiracy, says the document, was for Trump to keep classified documents he had taken with him from the White House and to hide and conceal them from a federal grand jury. Count 33 is withholding a document or record in which the government charges that Trump and Nauta did knowingly engage in misleading conduct toward another person and knowingly corruptly persuade and attempt to persuade another person with intent to cause and induce any person to withhold a record, document, and other object from an official proceeding. That is, a one, Trump attempted to persuade Trump Attorney One to hide and conceal documents from a federal grand jury, and two, Trump and Nauta misled Trump Attorney One by moving boxes that contain documents with classification markings so that Trump Attorney 1 would not find the documents and produce them to a federal grand jury. Count 34 is corruptly concealing a document or record. Count 35 is concealing a document in a federal investigation. Count 36 is Scheme to Conceal, in which the government charges essentially the same things it charged in Count 33. Trump has been ordered to appear at the federal courthouse in Miami on Tuesday. He has vowed he will never leave the 2024 nominating contest, nor the general election. It's unlikely this trial could even begin, let alone be over and done, before the November 2024 general election. That means that, assuming Trump is the GOP nominee, the issue of whether or not Trump should be pardoned will very much be on the ballot, because the Constitution's grant to the president of the pardon power is unlimited. And Trump could, as president, in January 2025, pardon himself and end the federal prosecution against him before it comes to its own conclusion. Or, alternatively, if the trial were to be concluded before he were to take the oath of office and he were found guilty, he could still pardon himself. We've discussed this before, but for those of you who may have missed that discussion, there is no constitutional or legal prohibition to a candidate running for office under indictment or even serving as president under indictment. Even more interestingly, there is no constitutional or legal prohibition to an individual serving as president if he or she has been convicted of a felony. The constitution drafted by the founders lays out the requirements for a president. He or she must be a citizen of the United States, must have been a resident here for at least 14 years, and must be at least 35 years old. Later, amendments to the Constitution added additional conditions. He or she must not have engaged in insurrection against the United States, and must not have served more than six years as president previously. And yes, there actually has been a significant candidate for president who campaigned after being convicted of a federal crime, and he campaigned from a federal jail cell. Eugene V. Debs, the Socialist Party nominee for president in 1900, 1904, 1908, 1912, and 1920, campaigned for president in 1920 after having been convicted of violating the Espionage Act for opposing the military draft in World War I. Debs won almost one million votes, about 6% of the popular vote that year. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan wants answers from the Department of Justice and the Special Counsel. Last Tuesday, he wrote a letter calling on the Department of Justice to provide his committee with internal DOJ documents, laying out the scope of Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. Jordan said in his letter that he wanted the DOJ documents delivered to him by June 20. President Trump announced on his Truth Social platform this morning plans to deliver remarks Tuesday evening, that is tomorrow night, at 8.15 p.m. from his golf club at Bedminster, New Jersey. And that's our Washington Report for this week.